Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for university students, perhaps for one of our Thomistic Institute chapters on a university campus or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. These lectures and events are happening around the country and around the globe all the time. To learn more, visit us at www.thomisticinstitute.org and sign up for our email list. We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think. So in the first talk that I gave, I was considering very very much in a focused way the, the teachings that the book of Revelation uh, contains, and they are specifically attuned toward the end of the world, the end of the cosmos, as we saw. There is one thing that I wanted to revisit there as I enter into this talk, which is more about uh, Paul's teaching on the resurrection, and that is we saw how the resurrection of the dead is featured in the end times as it's narrated in that book, okay? That there is, a, there are rather two cosmic battles that see the defeat of all temporal forces and then the defeat of Satan, the ancient serpent, as well as the defeat of or the, the destruction of Hades and death. They're all thrown into the massive lake of fire. And then, and only then, are the dead raised. And they are raised, they come before God who is seated on the throne, that is Jesus Christ, seated on the throne. The question is, uh, as someone actually asked me in the last night, is well, what's going on with the 144,000 and these, these people being raised from the dead? Okay, so you notice that in the course of the book of Revelation, the 144,000 are mentioned a few different times. And if you read it closely, those seem to refer to the martyrs, those who have undergone death for the sake of Jesus Christ. Instead of being complicit with the Roman Empire, as we talked about, these were the holy ones who accepted death. And they find themselves already in the presence of God they are under the altar, and we know from Revelation 6, 5, that they are able to petition to God from this position. They, they are praying to God already, asking how much longer will it be before God's judgment comes, before God puts things right. They are petitioning for the ones who are still suffering as members of the church on earth. And God actually answers their petition in the eighth chapter of Revelation. That's what sets things in motion. The coming of the Lamb, the Lamb listens to these petitions and sets things in motion for the end. So there is a mysterious way in which these holy ones are being depicted as having a cooperative role in the sense that they are asking for God's justice to be done, petitioning God, and God is answering in the affirmative. There are then these two groups, that these 144,000 who are indeed wearing white robes who have suffered death already, and then there is the dead who are raised in chapter 21. The dead who are raised, as uh, Father Brian did mention, this is absolutely everyone. All of those who have lived and died are now being raised. And some are being raised to eternal life, but some are being thrown into that fiery pool along with the ancient serpent, death, Hades, the evil one, Satan, where they will suffer for eternity. They will be afflicted in some way corporeally there in the lake of fire, whereas those who are raised to eternal life they will be given access to the heavenly Jerusalem. They will be given access to the Holy One seated on the throne. They will be given access to the river of life and the tree of life. 
they will become citizens of this new Jerusalem. So this resurrection of the dead to either this eternal torment or this eternal paradise is the way that revelation leaves things. The question that I want to then consider in this talk is where do we find or what do we find in greater detail about the individual, each individual person, how Paul speaks about the resurrection and the resurrection specifically of the body. What does it mean to have a bodily resurrection in the way that the Bible presents it? So this is what our object is for this second talk. Um, this uh, really um, to get into this, it's worthwhile to look a little bit at the progress, if you will, of revelation. I, that is to say, God's revelation of truth in the course of both the Old and the New Testament. What I mean is, it's hard to think about, maybe, but there were a lot of people, Israelites and Jewish people who lived, who didn't really know anything of the resurrection. This hadn't been revealed to them already in, say, 1000 BC or 700 BC. We see glimpses of this in the Old Testament. Okay, so there are a couple of examples that we might consider, that we might helpfully consider. Um, one is 1 Samuel 28, which I'm sure you all know exactly what I'm talking about there, right? Okay, king, there is this King Saul, right? He was the first king uh, before he disobeyed the Lord and was repudiated for that. And he had this prophet Samuel. Samuel was the one who told Saul what to do because Samuel had a particular relationship with the Lord. The Lord communicated through Samuel. But at a certain point of time, because of Saul's disobedience, Samuel stopped communicating what the Lord wanted through him. And eventually Samuel died. Saul tried to petition to the Lord to tell him what he wanted him to do, uh, whether he should go into battle at this moment or that moment. But Saul had already, in some sense, repudiated his relationship with God, and so these lines of communication were not open. So Saul became so desperate that he sought out a medium, uh, we could call it a witch, in Endor. And this woman who lived in Endor, which was the northern, northwestern part of Israel, she was living in seclusion and had the power to conjure Saul or Samuel from the dead. So we see in 1 Samuel 28 this conversation that happens between Samuel, Samuel's spirit being raised by this witch, and Saul. Okay, so what I want to highlight here is that this appears to be a like a, a reflection of a belief that there was some kind of shadowy post-mortem existence. The body, when you bury it, it sinks down into the earth and it decomposes. The soul, the spirit, goes down as well to a place called Sheol, a place of the shadows. So the author is talking about this witch having the power to raise up the spirit, the soul, from this shadowy underworld, which is not terribly dissimilar from Hades, and raise it up so that this soul could commune with God and give Saul his answer, okay? So I, my, my object here is not really to go into all of the metaphysics of that and trying to iron that out with what we would believe, uh, you know, in the Catholic faith and under the um, guidance of St. Thomas or anything like that. The point here is just to say that there was a limited understanding of what happened after one died. The second text in this regard that I think is also helpful and instructive comes from a much later period of time from the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a wisdom book. It's a wisdom book, meaning that it is a, a book about uh, observing the natural world and observing how human beings can get along well in the world. This uh, citation is from chapter 3, verses 17 to 22. 
And this uh, author, this wise author says, I said in my heart, as human beings, it is God's way of testing them and of showing that they are in themselves like beasts. For the lot, the, the fate of mortals and the lot of beasts is the same. The one dies as well as the other. Both have the same life breath. Human beings have no advantage over beasts, but all is vanity. Both go to the same place. Both were made from the dust, and to the dust they both return. Who knows if the life breath of mortals goes upward and the life breath of beasts goes earthward. And I saw that there is nothing better for mortals than to rejoice in their work, for this is their lot. So he's a pessimist, if you didn't pick that up, okay? So he's reflecting on the fact that it appears that there's nothing that separates human beings from animals, because we all die. We die just like dogs or whatever your favorite animal is, we're all going to die. It's a pessimistic kind of message. His point in the larger argument that he's making is, we can't plan for everything. We cannot... Uh, through our big brains, plan our way out of dying. We cannot observe the world in such a way that we can avoid every catastrophe and avoid death. So his counsel is to say, enjoy yourself a little bit. Because nothing can take it away from you if you enjoy yourself and experience happiness in today, there's nothing that can ever happen that will take that away from you. It's a kind of weird, semi-weird philosophical argument. But what he's saying is that if you truly enjoy yourself, then you will, and you rejoice in the present, this is a way in which you can experience the goodness of creation before you die. Rather than trying to plan for the future and store up a great fortune and plan your way out of suffering and so forth, that we should accept our fate and find the places where we can enjoy life nonetheless. That's basically what Ecclesiastes is trying to get across. I use that as a starting point then to make the, the following point, which is that it is a rather um, dark kind of existence that people have before they receive the fullness of revelation of what is possible through God's power and through God's mercy for all human beings. That is to say, life after death, resurrection. All right. So we start to see this idea of resurrection already in the Old Testament in a couple of places. One of them is Daniel 12. At that time, at that time, there shall arise Michael, the great prince, guardian of your people. At that time, your people will escape. Everyone who is found written in the book of life, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, others to reproach and everlasting disgrace. This language is quite similar to that of Revelation 22 that we saw, the dead being raised, some to life, some to everlasting torment. It seems that Revelation has drawn a little bit on Daniel 12. But one thing that I want to highlight here is that Daniel talks about this in terms of the people escaping. Daniel has this idea, this prophecy that the people are going to escape. From where are these people going to escape? They're going to escape from the exile, from the place where they find themselves in Babylon, in Persia. They're going to escape, and they're going to escape back to the land of the promise. So what Daniel is trying to, or not trying to, he is articulating here in his prophecy, is that the people are going to come out of the exile, make it back to the land, and the dead are also going to rise and join them. And what I want to highlight for you here is that in the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, there is a kind of materiality of salvation. They think of salvation as having a material component. 
This is what I mean. God gave the people the land. God elected this people, Exodus 19, 4 to 6. He elected this people to be a people his own, a nation of priests, a holy nation. This is how God wanted to form the people into an organized nation that was a holy nation that was elected by him, chosen by him to be in a specific, unique relationship with him. And then God desired to put them in a particular place. That is the land that we now know as Israel, the land around Jerusalem. This idea was that this would be a people who would worship God and God alone as God's particular possession. The people, though, they were given a charge, they were given the law in order to maintain this relationship, in, to, in order to cooperate in man, maintaining the status quo, if you want. But we know that the people turned away after other gods, so they did not have the grace, the internal grace to be able to perfectly adhere to the law. So they are exiled. They are exiled into Babylon and into Persia. The return then, the prophets who are prophesying this return, speak about this movement as salvation. God's deliverance, God's salvation, the way that God is going to act in their lives in order to bring them back into relationship with himself. The land is a vital kind of component, an intermediary that mediates this relationship. The land is necessary to experience the Lord's blessing and to experience relationship with him. This is most perhaps clearly stated in Deuteronomy 11, 8 to 32. It actually says that God has particular oversight over this land and no other, that God sends the rain on this land, and it's when the people obey God and love God with their whole minds, hearts, and souls that this beatitude is experienced. So in the Old Testament idiom, salvation, God's relationship, it is always described, almost without fail, in a spatial way, and it consists in being brought into this land, which works as this mediator, really, between God and his people. All right. So if that's the case, then, how does salvation, this language of salvation, eventually become a spiritual and primarily spiritual reality? It happens, I think, through this idea of the resurrection. The growing understanding and the further revelation that God does not, in fact, need the land to bless his people, to be in relationship with them. They grow in their understanding of who God is because of God's decision to continue to reveal himself to them in a deeper way. This happens in the exile. While the Jewish people are living in Greece, while they are living in northern Egypt, while they are living in Babylon and Persia, all over the place. They come to understand that their relationship with God is very much a spiritual one that is still mediated, though, through the law and through their reading of the law. They become a religion of the book to a certain degree. The book, the word of God, mediates God's relationship with them but they still need to adhere to it. They need to adhere to some degree to the prescripts. And this becomes a big point of contention in the period that we call the, uh, the, the, um, the, the period of the Seleucid Empire. So that this empire was a empire that took over all of Judah in the second century BC. This was the, the followers after Alexander the Great. So there's this book called Second Maccabees. If you've ever heard of this, it's, I assure you it's in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. It's one of those Greek books of the Old Testament. So it's very strange that it was written in Greek. It's a Hellenistic kind of ideal in this book. All right. So why do I bring up Second Maccabees? Because in the seventh chapter, 
of 2 Maccabees. We have narrated for us the death of a mother and her seven sons in a single day. So the tyrant Antiochus IV wanted all the Jewish people that he were under his uh, rule, he wanted them all to amalgamate to Greek ways of life. He wanted them to abandon specifically their practices of not eating pork, of observing the Sabbath, of practicing circumcision. He wanted them to abandon all of these things and to adopt the Greek way of life. They had to assimilate or die. And that's what's going on in this seventh chapter. He brings them before him and he asks them to abandon their way of life for his. And he promises them great rewards. But they all, every single one of them, the seven sons and their mother, they all deny this request. They all, they all stick firm to their faith and their practice. The mother in particular is depicted as a hero. She is described as noble, courageous, and she encourages her own sons to lay down their lives for their ancestral laws. What's telling here is the fact that she is actually described in a way that is comparable to the greatest Greek heroes of Greek literature. There are these words that are used in the Greek language to clearly depict her as being an equal of some of the great generals of the Greek army, that she is courageous like no other. So she is an ideal that is being put up there as a way of showing one's fidelity to the ancestral ways of life. It is in this showdown that we get a glimpse of the resurrection as a mode of salvation and specifically as a kind of repayment that God repays his faithful people through the resurrection. So the, the mother in her speeches is talking uh, to her sons about God being the creator of the universe. So she says, since it is the creator of the universe who shaped the beginning of humankind and brought about the origin of everything, he in his mercy will give you back both breath and life because you now disregard yourselves for the sake of his law. Again, the fourth brother says this when he dies. It is my choice to die at the hands of mortals with the hope that God will restore me to life. But for you, evil king, there will be no resurrection to life at all. It is explicit, in addition, the story is explicit about this resurrection being bodily. The third brother says this, when he is told forth to stretch his hands out and his tongue out so that they can cut them off and torture him before he dies, he says this, it was from heaven that I received these for the sake of his laws, I disregard them. From him, I hope to receive them again. So there's clearly developing a kind of understanding that the resurrection is not simply a spiritual thing, but it is definitely a bodily thing. It also, as I mentioned, it reveals to us that the resurrection can be merited in a certain sense, that there is a way in which God considers those who lay down their lives for his laws worthy of being resurrected. So the second brother mentions that this is the case when he says that the king of the universe will raise us up to live again forever because we are dying for his laws, he will repay us. The mother also uses financial terms, financial kind of economic language to describe what's going to happen. She says to her seventh son, be worthy of your brothers and accept death. But that phrase to be worthy is an economic term in Greek. It means be of like value, be of like monetary value as your brothers. It's an interesting turn of phrase. Then she also explains this way in a time of mercy, I may receive, that is to say, recover as payment, recover as payment, you along with your brothers. The verb that she uses is one that's used in Greek literature to mean recovering payment from. 
So she has an expectation, a deep hope and an expectation that she is definitely going to receive her sons again. Because she is exhorting them to lay down their lives, she is paying them down. She hopes to receive them again. So this idea that the resurrection is in some sense merited is clearly expressed in the course of 2 Maccabees 7. But it's also there in the New Testament. If we look at Luke 14, verses 13 to 14. When you hold a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Blessed indeed will you be because of their inability to repay you. For you will be repaid in the resurrection of the righteous. So it's not only a matter of martyrdom meriting resurrection, but there is a way in which the payment or, or the, the kindness, the mercy that one shows toward the poor is going to merit a kind of resurrection. That this is meritorious action has a relationship to play in one's being resurrected. This is the plain sense also of Daniel 12 and Revelation 22. If you notice, there's a book of life. There's this book. It's, that's a symbolic way. I, I don't think that God is going to have trouble remembering what we've done. I don't think he needs to write things down in a book literally. This has to do with uh, God keeping an account, yes, knowing the meritorious deeds that we have or have not engaged in, that this has a relationship to, uh, that it has a relationship to how we are going to be resurrected. That is, to eternal life in the heavenly Jerusalem or to the pool of fire of everlasting torment. Finally then, in this last part of the talk here, I want to move into Paul's theology. This is the, the place where we get the most robust statements about the resurrection of the body and the resurrection in general. In one sense, we could read, um, so one letter in particular is 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to be looking most especially at 1 Corinthians 15 here. It's one of the most robust statement, perhaps the most robust statement on the resurrection. Here, one of the things that Paul is beginning to articulate is the fact that on its own, we could, if I could put it this way, on its own, Christ's resurrection would do us no good. If it was simply a matter of the father raising the son, and that's it, and it, we're over here, and there's no relationship to us, you can see that's, that's a wonderful demonstration of divine power and the love between the father and the son. But as long as we are over here outside of that, in a very genuine sense, it does us no good. Okay, it, it, it's, a, it's a matter of how Christ's resurrection is related to our resurrection. This is where Paul wants to start. And one of the places that he talks about this most succinctly, which Father Brian also mentioned, is in uh, Philippians chapter 3, and verse 21 is particularly important. Christ will change our lowly body to conform with his glorified body, by the power that enables him also to bring all things into subjection to himself. So this idea of changing our lowly bodies into conformity with his body, changing, it's actually a matter of, of changing, transforming our bodies. And the word that he uses is sumorfeo, that it's uh, changing into the same shape with Christ. So conforming that we take on the same form as Christ. This is Christ's action that is, uh, that is going to be happening in the resurrection. That when we are raised, it's not simply that the earth is going to open up and we're going to have night of the living dead or something like that, where people are walking around in bodies exactly like the ones that we have now. They're going to be transformed. This Transformation is what he goes into detail describing in 1 Corinthians 15. The way that he accesses this, this, by the way, is saying that we need to die. Once again, something that Father Brian touched on. 
We need to be united with Christ in a death like his. We need to die with Christ in a death like his. That refers, of course, to our natural death, that as Christ died and was dead for a period, so will we be. But it also refers to our share in that death through baptism. That is, through the sacramental grace conferred at baptism, that we are radically united to Jesus Christ, that we become members of Christ, members of the body of Christ. Where the head goes, we will follow. This is the key part of the beginning of the resurrection, that the body of Christ has already been raised, the head has already been raised, the members will surely follow. This is the, the, what gets Paul going as to how specifically Christ's resurrection will be applied to us and how we will have a share in his resurrection. Finally, then, he, he comes to this question, a question that he doesn't really tactfully respond to at first because uh, he calls people fools again. But um, so it's not a good pedagogical, they teach you that in uh, pedagogy courses, at least they did at Catholic University. Don't call your students fools when they ask questions. That's the number one rule, I think. Oh, no, the number one rule is repeat it into the microphone. The number two rule is don't say that you're fools uh, for doing that. Okay, so there were some people who thought that Christ was raised, but then that somehow the dead wouldn't be raised. What Paul wants to assert here is that that makes no sense, that we cannot divorce Christ's resurrection from the resurrection of the dead. And then he goes on to ask a rhetorical question. Some people say, how will the body be raised? What will that look like? His response here, after calling people fools right there, uh, is to to say um, that there is a metaphor or perhaps an analogy between a seed and the human body. So a seed has to die. And what happens when a seed dies? It is transformed. So if you plant the acorn in the ground and the tree grows up, you would never be able to, if this was the first time you ever saw a tree, you would never be able to reason backward to say that this tree probably came from a seed or whatever that big that looked brown and so on and so forth. The transformation is complete and it's utterly mystifying how that would work. So in an analogous way, so too with the human body. We are planted into the ground when we die. Our body is planted into the ground. When it is raised, it will be transformed into a thing that is unfathomably glorious, that has a kind of continuity, but at the same time is something utterly different than we could possibly imagine. The way that he puts this is that not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for human beings, another kind for flesh of animals, another kind for flesh for birds, and so on and so forth. There are both heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the brightness of the heavenly is one kind and that of the earthly is another. What you sow is not brought to life unless it dies, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel of wheat, perhaps of some other kind. But God gives it a body as he chooses, and to each of the seeds its own body. So he's making this metaphor, this analogy between all of these different kinds of bodies as seeds, but that God in his providential plan has elected human beings to be transformed. The seed of our body will be transformed. That's his starting point. So when he returns to the metaphor, he applies it then to the resurrection of the dead. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead, it is sown corruptible. It is raised incorruptible. The body is sown corruptible, but it's raised incorruptible. It is sown dishonorable, but it is raised glorious. It is sown weak, but it is raised powerful. It is sown as a natural body. It is raised as a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual one. So once again, the main point here is that there is a transformation, that the kind of body that we have 
is a different kind of body than we will have after the resurrection. They are basically two different kinds of bodies, according to Paul here. He goes on then to describe, and I'm going through this meticulously because this is, again, his treatise on the resurrection. It's the one place where he goes through meticulously the resurrection in this manner. So he has recourse to the, uh, the situation with Adam. This is in verse 45. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam is a life-giving spirit. But the spiritual was not first, rather the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was made from the earth, earthly, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly one, so also are the earthly, and as is the heavenly one, so also are the heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly one, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly one. So he's going back to Genesis 1 and saying that in this earthly body, we are images of God. We are created in the image and likeness of God. Genesis 1, 26 to 27. We represent somehow God in our physical bodies. This is a way in which we, uh, it's, a, it's a great mystery. Some of the fathers talk about this more in terms of the intellect and the will and the soul, the faculties of the soul as imaging the Trinity. But there is also a sense, uh, and it's very much the case what Paul is talking about here, that we in our physical bodies do somehow image God. And that comes through our care of the natural world, the dominion that we exercise. It comes through the way that we make manifest divine love to one another and to the world. That we actually incarnate ourselves. We incarnate divine love and we incarnate divine uh, justice to one another if we act accordingly, if we do well to take care of the earth, to, if we do well to interact with justice with one another. This is the, what Paul is drawing on Genesis 1 to say that we are in the image of Adam here, but we are also in the image of Christ. There is a spiritual image. This, uh, to get at what this refers to, um, it's good to read this in conjunction with the actual resurrection appearances of Christ from the Gospels. There are seven different resurrection appearances that occur throughout all of the Gospels. And there are a few things that we can take away from the resurrection and what's going on here with this image of the spiritual body uh, in Christ. So the first thing to notice is that in no one, not a single one of the resurrection appearances, do the apostles or followers of Christ recognize him at first. Every single time, they have trouble recognizing who Christ is. So just a fun little uh, exercise here. Mary thought he was a gardener. Uh, the two disciples on the way to Emmaus thought he was a fellow traveler. The disciples in Jerusalem thought he was a ghost. Um, they don't recognize him while fishing, thinking that he was a fishing guide. Okay, so there are these different ways that Christ is misidentified in the beginning. But then, through some interaction, through some word, through some gesture of Christ, he is revealed to them. So, in the garden, he says to Mary, Rabuni, or he says, uh, do not touch me, Mary. Um, let me ascend. He is, he is um, speaking to her, and she recognizes him by saying, Rabuni. Um, in explaining the scripture to the two disciples on the way to Emmaus, they recognize through the burning of their hearts and then through the breaking of bread with him that this is, in fact, the risen Lord. So that one is particularly helpful to think about because they have been talking to him for hours on the way to Emmaus. They have an entire meal with him, and it's when he says, peace be with you, and breaks the bread that they actually recognize who this is. There's also uh, saying, peace be with you, in some of the other, um, the other instances that I mentioned. But then with doubting Thomas, of course, in John 20, 
there's also the fact that he puts his finger in the side and in the nail marks in his hands and feet. So that all of those things show us collectively that the body of Christ has not completely changed into a completely different thing. There is continuity, but it has been transformed. It has been glorified. So it is a new kind of body, but it is materially, there seems to be some kind of continuity, something that they recognize. This is what Paul, I think, is driving at then in the course of explaining the resurrection through these two Adams. The first Adam being Adam, who was created in the garden, the second Adam being Christ. That there is both a way in which now we are icons of God, that we are uh, images of God now, but we are still being transformed into an image that is even more superlative than the one we currently are now. So Paul, at the end of this little treatise on the resurrection, speaks about this transformation. He says, Behold, I will tell you a mystery. We shall not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In an instant, in the blink of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. For that which is corruptible must clothe itself with incorruptibility, and that which is mortal must clothe itself with immortality. And when this which is corruptible clothes itself with incorruptibility, and, with, and this which is mortal clothes itself with immortality, then the word that is written shall come about. Death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The point here is that there is a transformation through which we are going to be made sharers in the resurrection of Christ. And this is what Paul is talking about on an individual level is the same reality that Revelation 22 is talking about on a collective level, collectively. The whole church, all of the number of the holy ones, all of those who will be written in the book of life, receiving the resurrection and being transformed, receiving entrance into the heavenly Jerusalem. That's Revelation 22. In 1 Corinthians 15, 52 to 54, what Paul is talking about is that same reality, but describing it on an individual level. That we are planted in the ground like a seed, that we are raised incorruptible, transformed into this new image, a spiritual image of Jesus Christ. And in this, we become a, a kind of extension of Christ in a glorified state. That it is the part of the, the purpose of all of this is so that God can extend to the full number of his holy ones, of those who love him, this kind of loving relationship that images, that parallels the love that he has for his son. It is a way that we, through the resurrection, are transformed and actually um, plug into the life of the Trinity. We become an image of the Son in his glorified resurrected body. And in that, we are united to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the, the ultimate point of the transformation, is to make us capable of existing in this imminent presence of God to, be, to, uh, to really enjoy the beatific vision. So again, in more theological language, this is all what is going on on the individual level. This is the description of what is going on in Revelation 22, where the, all of the holy ones are entering into the heavenly Jerusalem to go before the one seated on the throne, to eat the fruit of the tree of life by the river of life, which is issuing forth. So they're in one register that is extremely symbolic and mythopoeic. There is this collective understanding of the resurrection and salvation. Whereas in 1 Corinthians 15, it's complementary. It has to do with the individual and how each person will experience this resurrection transformation in Christ. 
and eventually ascent into the beatific vision. Okay. That's the end. <laughs> yep. Um, so you talked about meriting the resurrection. Yep. Um, how does that work exactly? Because you know, we earn that we can deserve somehow. Like, how do we do it from that? Because we, in a sense, it seems to me that like our merits, whatever we do, is a, is a gift from God. So, like, we don't really merit our merits. Right. And radically speaking, that's that's true. Um, the first rule is do not say no. Oh, it's the uh, the yes. Okay. So the question is about. Um, if, um, in what way can we rightly say that we merit the resurrection? Um, so, uh, right, the, this is, I think, the, the classic thing that Thomas would talk about in terms of grace and sanctifying grace would be there's, there's condign and congruous merit. Uh, so there's two kinds of merit. Um, the, the fact of the matter is, to put it in terms that you um, yourself have mentioned there, um, God in God's plan has set up, a, you might say, a let's just call it a system. You know, there's the sacraments, there is the commands that God has given us, and that is out of God's goodness and God's mercy. And this is to say that God has promised to be faithful um, to us through this, the, His promises. Uh, it's been revealed to us that if we um, act in accord with grace and we do these moral things that we do merit, but it's a according to this um, pre-existent you know, will of God that uh, this, this, he has willed this from all eternity that this should be the case. So it's not meriting absolutely speaking, but according to uh, this, this notion of... Um, yeah, I forget the which one is which. Do you remember con, condign versus congruent? Congruous. I want to say that condign merit is is the one that is the merit that is done by virtue of being um, being united to Christ. Yeah. Okay. Which is the the one where you know in a sense it's the, it's the one that actually is, is effective because it's it's Christ meriting in us essentially. Yeah. yeah. Our participation, our participation in Christ. Right. Yes. So. Right, I, I always get them confused. Or so condign merit, yes, um, that this would be the, if you want to think about it this way, the merit that God set up a system where where people where whereby through the sacraments being united with Christ and Christ's grace working in us, we can do good and avoid evil, thus meriting our salvation. But it's not absolutely speaking. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um. So basically, um, all of the Sadducees denied the resurrection. Yeah. Um, so it, therefore, it's clear that they also rejected the book of Acts as inspired. Mm -hmm. So I'm basically just wondering, like, why did they reject that and what was it before? Especially since Maccabees is about the rabbinical priests reading the control of the temple and they said to the priests. So mm -hmm. just why did they reject that as inspired? Okay, so the question is that, um, this is for you, Father Jonah. Didn't have to remind me this time. So the. Uh, Okay, so the the question is um, why do the Jew, why did the Jewish people like the Sadducees um, seemingly reject two Maccabees? Why did they not accept the resurrection of the dead and only hold to the Torah? Um, so there are those are two different questions. Just to say that none of the Jewish groups of Christ's time probably would have accepted Second Maccabees as, um, say, authoritative or canonical. Part of the reason for that is it was written in the diaspora, in the area probably around Alexand uh, Alexandria, I think. And it was written in Greek, uh, according to kind of a Greek model of, of things. Uh, so that for those reasons, um, not all of the Jewish people would have known about it even or really accepted it it would have been kind of a uh yeah a kind of to them perhaps strange or marginal kind of writing that they wouldn't have accepted 
the Sadducees um, only um, understood the Torah to be ultimately authoritative, they did still read the prophets, but they, it was a, a very, um, it's a strong uh, kind of hierarchy that they had where it's just the Torah that, uh, from Moses that is really the um, ultimate authority on all these matters of faith. You can read the prophets and some of the writings, other writings, but they're really not, not quite at that same level. The Pharisees were the ones who also looked at the, the prophets um, and understood them to be authoritative in a comparable way. Hey, Father John has a question. Uh, what's uh, going on with um, being baptized on behalf of the dead in verse 14? The baptized on behalf of the dead? Um, You'll have to remind me where, where that is. Uh, so it's, it might be, maybe it's one sixteen, but he's, he's gone through the dead are not raised. Um, how can you, why, why do we have this practice? All right, so the, I think the gist of his argument is the fact that if the, the dead are not raised, then essentially um, the... I mean, what you could say is essentially the sacraments are futile. Uh, they're powerless to do anything. Um, so why, um, why, yeah, so why practice any kind of, uh, yeah, any, any kind of prayer, any kind of uh, practice for the sake of the dead would be silly and meaningless. And presumably, I don't know, I haven't done a lot of extensive background research on um, some of these religious practices that Paul was encountering, but there seemed to have been some things that were uh, rather incongruous, um, just people saying one thing but then acting another way. I mean, so that, that might be a part of what Paul is driving at, that you're being stupid because you're believing one thing and doing another thing. Um, yeah. So the Jews didn't believe or hope for a bodily resurrection, but then the seven brothers from the Maccabees seem to like before they died, like kind of awaiting a resurrection. Yeah. So some of the Jewish people did believe in a resurrection. Some did not. So one thing about um, all, yeah. I mean, so pretty much at any time, uh, the. There isn't a, a kind of central type of Judaism. It's, it's always been rather fractious that there are a lot of different groups that have um, slightly different beliefs about everything. Uh, so that um, there were groups that did, in fact, hold to a, a kind of resurrection of the dead. Um, what exactly that looked like, um, they... I, I am not familiar with, like, for example, the Pharisees, um, but it seems to be the case that they did believe in um, this as a kind of posthumous way of God extending punishment or reward to people who had been faithful in keeping the law and so forth. And it's um, quite possible that it, they did understand it to be the, uh, um, the, a kind of bodily resurrection. I go with three. I'm not sure it was her steel. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so, in I think, it's one, I think we played it yesterday during the fast church, there's a song where um, I think David is talking about like death and not being able to see God. And mm -hmm. Is that represent what view of salvation is that representing? Okay. Is that representing the like Hades view? Sure. Okay. So, the question is about the Psalms that speak about not being able to praise God in the land of oblivion or. Uh, there, are, there are a few different psalms that speak and use this kind of trope of, you know, save me because if I die, I can't praise you anymore because I'll be, okay. So, yeah, so that those do in the uh, historical context that those, those are references to Sheol and to the kind of shadowy underworld where it was understood that you weren't, um, or the belief seems to have been that there was yeah, there wasn't an ability to praise God in the same way and that there was a, a interruption almost in your relationship with God. So it just wasn't very clear. When 
um, when um, we speak about the Psalms as also having been written by David, um, that that they are, and the, being the prayer of the church, um, that this is then, there's a spiritual interpretation that is quite, um, has quite a long standing in the tradition, whereby the, the you know, the land of oblivion, um, right, it is the, um, purgatory or the, the after death, the, the, this would be like what it's referring to. Um, again, it's a way of invoking God's salvation because of what, um, yeah, what, what can no longer happen after one dies. Um, so it's um, what, when we use them or pray the Psalms, it's in a little bit different context and framework of hope, whereas perhaps originally that wouldn't have been as hopeful. Sure. Okay. So, right. Yeah. Um, so the question is regarding the old Adam, uh, is his, if he was potentially glorified, would that state of glorification be better than his original state if he had never sinned? Uh, the short answer is yes. Okay. So being glorified um, is the, it's a state of um, immediate kind of um being in the presence of God in a manner that can no longer pass away. So when, again, when there is the, the resurrection of the dead, uh, the holy ones entering into the presence of God, there is nothing that can impede that any longer. There is no mitigation of that any longer. Uh, it is perfect beatitude and happiness, you know, for eternity. So there, there is no, yeah, just no mitigation in that. Um, as we know happened in the state of original justice, uh, even though there was a kind of privileged relationship that Adam had with God in the garden, as it's described, this uh, is not, uh, this was something that could, that was in danger of being lost, diminished, you know, and these sorts of things. Yeah, or you had, you had one first, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Oh. So the question is, so we get baptized so that we can become part of the body of Christ. So what was Christ's baptism? Like, what does that mean? Okay, so the question is, what was Christ's baptism? What did it mean? Uh, it, it was an, um, in, in relating that to our baptism. So it is the, the act that inaugurates the in time inaugurates the power of baptism to convey the grace. So it's the, what we call the institution of the sacraments. It's a little bit like, um, you know, the, the last supper. Okay. So that it, it in fact mysteriously precedes the crucifixion, death uh, and resurrection of Christ. But yet it is the act that, uh, we can say that it's the act that institutes this particular sign as a sure means through which that will be applied to us. And so why does Christ undergo this uh, act? It's um, the, the, yeah, I mean, it's his decision to do so has to do with setting this up and commending this as a external sign to his, uh, you know, his followers, his church, that this will be the way that you can, in fact, um, receive true, and it's a fulfillment as well. So just to say that um, John the Baptist was also baptizing, as the name would suggest, right? Okay, so in this was a practice that Jewish people would engage in, and a lot of different groups were doing it for quite a bit before Christ came. They would go to the Jordan, and they would uh, engage in this as a way of uh, um, 
expressing their compunction before God and asking for forgiveness. Uh, and then it was a kind of symbolic washing, okay? So the, one of the big ways that, you know, you would be purified and, and yeah, um, th that this was quite important in Jewish uh, custom and practice. But the, it never had the power to actually do, it, it had the power to draw people to ask for forgiveness, but not actually to, in fact, effect anything. So Christ uses this sign that's quite important to the Jewish people in order to activate it, to turn it into something that indeed could communicate sanctifying grace, the actual remission of and washing away of original sin. Um, so that's what he's doing. It's the, yeah, the relationship there. Okay, that was the last one. Okay. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.